The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Some of you were here last week, and I talked about this chapter in Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. And he has a line he used quite often in his teachings, still flowing water. I'll just read that section, which he has right at the end of that chapter. If your mind is peaceful, it will be just like, it will be just like still flowing water. Have you ever seen still flowing water? Just that. You've seen flowing water. You've seen still water but maybe never still flowing water. Right there, right where your thinking cannot take you, right in the peacefulness, you can develop wisdom. Your mind will be like flowing water, and and yet it will be still. Still, and yet flowing. So I call it still flowing water. Wisdom can arise here. So we talked about that last week, and I know it's a little puzzling, but uh, sometimes we need these puzzling statements, it gets us interested, and I think that's partly what he's trying to do. But it also is very practical. This, what he's talking about, he's actually pointing to the mind that we already have that in this experience of our mind, and by the way, this is the experience of our mind, all of this, what we call our experience, is a mind experience. The seeing that we see is known in the mind, right? There may be visual objects out there, but all we know is what the mind knows. There may be actual things making sounds out there, but we just know what's being heard in the mind, what's being thought in the mind, the sensations that are being known in the mind. So, this is a mind experience. It's always a mind experience. And in this experience that we have in any moment, but you might as well use this moment because it's right here, in this experience, clearly, there are things that are moving. This we talked about last week. Seeing is moving, it's alive, it's a dynamic, it's not static. Hearing is alive with movement. Thoughts are alive with movement. Sensations are alive with movement, with change. So part of our experience very clearly is like that flowing water. That half of the equation is pretty easy for us to know directly that things are moving. And actually, it's a, it's a very useful object to pay attention to. So, for example, a lot of people like being mindful of the breath coming in, mindful of the breath going out. Other people use <clears throat> the sensations of sitting or just generally the predominant sensations in the body as an anchor for the meditation. Some people use hearing. But regardless of the particular anchor, like what you keep bringing your attention back to, instead of having the thought, oh, I'm paying attention to the breath coming in or the breath going out, you can actually be aware of the movement 
like that, whatever it is that that breath is, it's moving. So you're noticing the movement of it. Same way, if you're sitting on the side of a road and there are cars coming and going, you could be noticing the color of the car, you could be noticing whether you like the car that's passing by or not, or you could be aware of the movement. Because the movement is something to be aware of. It's something that can be known. So, part of what this instruction from Ajahn Charles is reminding us or inviting us to do is, it's like a, we've got a wise teacher, the Buddha, and one of the things the Buddha said all life long, I mean, for his 45 years of teaching, one of the points he emphasized more than anything else was, it's really skillful to pay attention to how things are changing. Whatever, he didn't say, like, pay attention to this and notice that it's changing. But more more it was, whatever you're paying attention to, whatever you're noticing, whether it's an internal state or an external state, it would be to your benefit to notice that it's changing, that it's dynamic. It's an unfolding process. It isn't a thing. It's a changing process, an unfolding process. So in this sense, our real meditation object might be change. And in one moment, we're noticing the in-breath changing. It's a changing thing, that in-breath. And then we might hear some sounds, and we notice those sounds. We're going to notice the changingness of those sounds, that the sound, whatever it is that we're noticing, isn't set, but it's changing. And then we might have a thought. Tomorrow i got to do this. But we can notice that that thought also is exhibiting, manifesting change. It's a changing dynamic, an unfolding dynamic. Until we get really good at noticing the flowing water part of the simile. That no matter where we are, what we're noticing, what's happening, we notice that it's changing. Well, that's interesting. Because... Our language makes it seems, seem like we live in a world of nouns, of solid, permanent, fixed things. But if we key into, tune into the change, changingness of everything, then that view begins to fall apart. And then the other invitation from this simile, and just generally in the Buddhist, in the Buddhist teachings, is this The unconditioned, it's more subtle. So, the conditioned world, the world of objects, these objects express change, impermanence, ephemeral nature, changing ephemeral nature. Nothing ever lasts long enough. It's always on the way to becoming the next thing and the next thing. Right? So, it's like even our life, like our 40s might have seemed really substantial, real. And then someday, they're just gone. <laughs> Nowhere to be seen. And however we might look for the 40s, you know, that 40-year-old guy doesn't exist anymore. And even Wednesday slipping through our fingers. Wednesday isn't substantial. The week is disappearing like sand through our fingers. You know, we can't hold on to this week, make it last, or this life, or anything. 
this talk, being here at Common Ground together, it's falling away, it's already disappearing. Before we really get here, it's already on its way to disappearing. So this is what we call the conditioned world. And the conditioned world is lawful, it's impermanent, it's impersonal. That things are changing, but as much as we try, we can't find a center, something, somebody behind what's changing. Wherever we look in this world of objects, of experiences, we just see more change. We don't see a set, fixed somebody sort of behind the driver's seat uh, doing the change or aware of the change or owning the change. It's just change. Whatever we look at. And uh, it's great, you know, now with the different science, like of geology, we see things that uh, even seem so clearly not changing that they change. Like, I lived for a long time on the East Coast and uh, did a lot of hiking in the Adirondack Mountains and they're very peaceful rolling hills. I've done mountaineering and backpacking out in the Sierra Nevadas and Alaska and other places, so I've seen different kinds of mountains. And uh, the Appalachians, you know, they're just very nice mountains. And then I read once that, you know, geologists think that at some point those mountains were higher than the Himalaya Mountains are now. You know, now I think, I don't know if there's anything over 4,000 feet or much over 4,000 feet on the East Coast. And uh, well, the Himalaya Mountains are, what, 27,000 feet or something like that, Mount Everest. So it's a little different. And so just that thought that something that big got worn down, or maybe some of you have seen the Grand Canyon, and you just see that, yeah, it's just a river, but given enough time, little wind, little rain, and you get this amazing thing. In so many ways, we see that, uh, like uh, now, there's a lot of talk about glaciers, and uh, some of you know that Common Ground is looking to purchase a retreat property. We're getting closer. By the way, everyone's invited out. I'll mention this later at the end of the talk. Come see this, the property on Saturday if you'd like. But it's in part of the state that uh, the glaciers didn't affect as much. So it's very rolling. And uh, But just to imagine, you know, so much of North America covered in glaciers and now not covered in glaciers. Or even... Well, just so many things that come and go. Arctic ice, ice sheet that was there and now is less there. So things that seem so permanent, so dependable, it's not really dependable like we thought it was. Everything is changing. They just Everything just has different time frames. So this is the conditioned world, the changing world, the impersonal world of change. And because of that, it's not satisfying, or we say it's limited. You could even say the world of change is imperfect, because from a self-point of view, I can't get real ground in this world, because it's changing, and I'm not in control of the change. So it's unsatisfying, this world. And now, Ajahn Chah said, yeah, but that's, that's just half. We need to see the flowing right here and now with the 
stillness or emptiness or space or silence. We want to know both at the same time. So, here and now, that means it would be here and now. So is there something that's not changing here and now? Something that's not limited or imperfect or unsatisfying? Sometimes we talk about it as stillness or silence or space. It has a flavor of being undefined or unformed or unfixed. Because if it were defined or fixed or formed, then the mind could know it. It could be one of those changing things that are being known. So it's, in a sense, (coughs) unknown in a conceptual sense. can't be conceptualized, can't be captured or grasped, can't cling to it. So, you know, the breath, in a way, can't be clung to either. Sounds and sights can't be clung to. But it seems like we can cling to them. You know, we have an idea. It has the appearance that we can hold it. But it's just that we're missing the change of it. So I thought it'd be useful just to talk about this in, in terms of something very real and practical, like how we relate to other people our partners, our friends, our cat, our dog, people here in this room, people at our job. Because Ajahn Chah is suggesting that as we move about our life, we're experiencing this life, this moment, in terms of still flowing water. So right here and now, a sense of space and a sense of movement. And you know, when we meet somebody, when we interact with somebody, it's quite useful to have this sense of space. The sense of things being unknown, undefined, unformed. In a way, to see, to really understand the activity of that other person we're meeting, or the cat, We have to have some, we have to understand also emptiness or stillness or the space of the moment in which this activity is happening. The thing is, without understanding both or relating, intuiting both, we can't understand either. In a way, we need the movement of life, the movement of activity to intuit what's unformed, the knowing, the empty, right? Because emptiness, the emptiness of knowing, the mind that knows, it's the only thing that can know movement. Because if we're, if we're caught, attached to the movement, we can't really know it. It's like I'm thinking something or emoting something, but to some degree the mind is attached or identified with it, There's no way to really know what emotion, the movement of emotion is, or the movement of thought is, or the movement of this being here together in this room is. But from from the place of silence and stillness and space and emptiness, then movement can be known. 
with clarity. It can be seen as it actually is, in an undistorted way. So, movement helps us intuit that which can open to the movement of life, the movement of emotion, the movement of sound and sensation. And this empty knowing reveals what the movement actually is. So there's, it's like we can say we come alive as a free, wise, loving human being when there's still flowing water. So I just encourage us when we're interacting to just play with it lightly. It's not about thinking about it as much as it is just holding like when you see movement, know there's movement. But remember, to really know movement, movement needs to be known by emptiness. To really know movement, there has to be the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is revealed because of the movement, because movement is being known. Like if there's this activity, there's got to be space for this activity to happen. We can't touch space. We can't limit space. If we define it, it's not really the space anymore. I mean, even calling it space in some way limits it. But it doesn't mean there isn't space. So, it may seem a little abstract. Honey, (laughs) when you go home, no, honey, or whatever you call your cat, sweetie, (laughs) or your friend, dude, You don't have to tell them anything, actually. But just the sense of the silence that punctuates the activity of the interaction or the space of the interaction. And to be intuiting both, to be aware of both. Like now, even though, you know, your role maybe may seem more passive, it's actually not. You're moving your body, you're thinking, we're all actively creating this, making this the way that it is. And so even here we can be reflecting that both not just on the movement, but also it's happening here. This is being known here and now. That this experience of having a body sitting and thinking about what Mark is saying and having a mood or an emotion and seeing and having ideas of who these people are around me, that all of this activity is being known here and now in this space. Otherwise, the mind, the the strong tendency of our mind is to create, try to create a refuge, a personal refuge in the activity of our lives but we end up being endlessly disappointed because whatever the activity of any moment is, one thing is for sure. It's not controllable. It's not governable. governable. It's impermanent. It's ephemeral. So we need a different refuge. And this is the great thing, by learning to take refuge in the unconditioned, 
we actually know more and more how to be in the world of activity. In some ways, we call this sangha. Some of you have heard that word sangha. A couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk about the three refuges, and I defined sangha like this capacity we have to respond appropriately in the moment. It really comes from emptiness, from being empty, knowing it's like this. So don't think about emptiness philosophically. Emptiness means picking refuge in the knowing, like this is being known. Whatever emotion there is right now in the heart, maybe a little shame, maybe a little puzzlement, maybe a little excitement, or whatever it might be, boredom, whatever the feeling tone might be, that is being known. So the realization that it's being known creates a contrast to the activity of that mood or attitude or emotion. Not knowing that it's being known means the mind is, in a sense, tumbled into it, has gotten caught up in what's being known, identified with the objects of experience. In other words, we're taking all of this very personally which justifies the attachment, the constriction of the mind, the body, the heart, and we suffer. So one of the things you can do it, uh, in relating to other people, other beings, just because that's so much of our life as a social being, is get interested in the space, like the space between sentences, something simple. You know, that person says something, you say something. But there's always space, like where you say, I had a good day. And to really, but we don't tend to notice when something ends, that empty space. We usually want to fill it up. Whether we fill it up with some internal dialogue or we say something back. But instead we can just notice the, that empty space, that silent space. And then whatever, whoever, ha- whatever happens next, whoever says something next, then it like, we really see how it takes birth. That we really see the changing nature of that thought that somebody's expressing. It like takes birth. It blooms, it forms, and then it falls apart. And there's emptiness again. So we're seeing these little births and deaths all day long in our social interactions. We get born as somebody who is feeling a lot of embarrassment, and then that dies. And then we maybe get born as someone with a lot of pride, and maybe get born as a really friendly person interacting in a friendly way, and then an aversive, irritated, impatient beast And then all these different births and deaths. And that's such a different perspective on being a social being. Because what's so hard on us, hard to bear, is when we have a fixed view of who we are. Even if it's like a relatively beautiful idea, you know, I'm a really good person, I have a lot of integrity, I'm intelligent, generous. So you have, paint this picture, but what makes it unbearable isn't just, you know, that you have a negative view. 
But even when you have a positive view, what makes it unbearable is the mind being fixed or dependent on that idea. Because it doesn't line up. Even the word dukkha, which we usually translate as stress or suffering, it means when the axle doesn't fit in the hole for the wheel. And so there's, you know, it's, it's bumpy. It's irritating. It's unsatisfying. That's where the word dukkha comes from, that we translate as stress. So when we have a fixed idea of you, like my, I have a fixed idea of you, or I have a fixed idea of myself, then the fact that the mind has a fixed idea, it's dependent on that idea, it's like creating, trying to create some safety, some ground with that idea, then it doesn't work very well. And then think about how often we do this with each other. And we do it so quickly. Even somebody you've never seen before, they walk in the room, we may not be conscious of it, but we very quickly have a fixed view of who that person is. Like, for example, if they're neither attractive nor scary, usually what our fixed view is, you don't matter, right? I don't have to pay attention to you because you don't, like, make a blip on my radar screen. And that's, that is a fixed view. But when we're in the still flowing water, we'll see that thought. You know, oh, it's just you. It doesn't matter. We'll see it as a that river of change. It's like, oh, it's just a thought. In this vast, empty space of the present moment, this mind that knows, that's just a thought. That's just an emotion. That's just a feeling, a sensation, a sight, a sound. So we see the dance of our life, the movement of life, life, what the Buddha calls the eight worldly winds. Moments of gain, moments of loss, pleasant moments, unpleasant moments, being famous, being infamous, being praised, and being blamed. These are the eight worldly winds. We just, life just moves through these in different ways for different people at different times. This is the movement of our life. And the question is, do we construct an identity that then gets pushed around, beaten up by this constant movement of the eight worldly winds? Or are we finding, discerning a refuge in the midst of this movement that understands the movement, isn't afraid of the movement? Because this refuge isn't distancing ourselves from movement, which, which of course would be just another movement. Right? Because it's really fear. That, you think it's a really wise movement. I mean, there's a lot of spiritual traditions that are all about, like, get me out of here. <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, we wear white, or we go to, you know, we build a beautiful temple where, like here, we take our shoes off and we make beautiful music and it's all refined and we don't let anything coarse happen in that, those places. So we have these ideas like uh, refinement, which is some way of, ooh, get me out of this messy world. Now, I appreciate refinement. We, we all probably do in our different ways. So I'm not saying that, you know, having an orderly house, which is a refinement, you know, is bad. Keeping your body clean, that's a refinement, is bad. Or having a nice place to go meditate, 
that's orderly. It's not bad. It's good to have these refined places. But they're not ends in themselves. Because we don't want the mind to have to be fixed or attached to anything that moves. Because it's a setup for suffering. We want to be able to enter this life fully, engage it, be real, be intimate, respond. But to do that, we need to know emptiness. The heart has to realize the space, the silence, the stillness that's here, because it brings perspective to everything that's moving. And so, to begin with that, you think, okay, I'll just start paying attention to emptiness. But that's not the means. The means is to get intimate with what's moving. The means to wake up, to come into balance, to have deeper insight, is to get interested, to include everything that's moving. Being radically honest and real. So whatever you're feeling, nothing needs to be excluded. Everything belongs. This world, this moment as it is, is perfect, perfectly designed to be included. Because by including it, what gets revealed? The heart, or the wisdom, that is willing to include everything. That's how emptiness, that's how the deeper insights are revealed. By training the mind to include everything. To be completely open and undefended. Because only emptiness, only space, can allow everything to be what it is already. You see? Right? Like, if we wanted this to be perfectly free, we'd have to stop being this and be the space in which this is happening. We get out of the picture, so to speak. I mean, language isn't perfect here. And then everything is happening because... There's nobody trying to control things. Nobody who has a preference for how this dynamic unfolds for us. Now the thing about space, it's right here. So it's not like going somewhere else. It's really about shifting the point of reference. What's off in how human beings, how we all live, is we get fixated, attached to the movement of life, the emotions that are moving, the thoughts that are moving in our mind, the sights that are moving, the sounds that are moving, the sensations that are moving. We keep taking it personally, and the mind gets caught, and it forgets what is also here and now. This is just being known, something being known. In the space, in the open, empty silent, still space of the here and now. can't remember if I read this last uh, Wednesday. This is a quote from that chapter from by Ajahn Chah. If there is no long, there is no short. If there is no right, there can be no wrong. People these days keep studying looking for good and evil. But that which is beyond good and evil, they know nothing of. 
And then later he says, the practice of clinging to goodness and rejecting badness is the Dhamma, the teaching of children. It is like a toy. But if you grab it, if you grab on to goodness, badness will follow. So how do we make peace with our life, with things as they are? The mind, the heart has to stop turning this into good and bad. Because we take it personally, then all of a sudden we're seeing it in terms of good and bad. We justify getting tight. We justify struggling, pushing, pulling, holding, defending. And then out of that comes all the wars, internally, in our families, between nations. All of that suffering arises through this fundamental misunderstanding of what this is. And it's just that we are misperceiving, we're blind to half of the equation. It's like the mind, this is the fall from grace really, the mind gets entranced by movement. I don't know, I don't think I shared this last week, I'll share the story and then I'll open it up for discussion. But uh, some of you know in the <coughs> Sufi tradition, which is the one of the mystical tr- lineages in Islam. There's a story, uh, not clear if this is a historic figure or not, a guy named Nasiruddin, who is sort of well-known for crazy wisdom. And uh, like people not sure if he was a fool or really wise. So one day, Nasiruddin is out in the bushes looking for something and Slowly, the neighbors start to come out of their homes to help them out. They're all looking there on the edge of the street. And I guess he had lost a jewel. And eventually, one of the neighbors says, well, where exactly did you drop it? And he says, well, I dropped it way over there. And they go, why are we looking here? He says, well, there's a street lantern here. It's good light. <laughs> yeah, and but that's kind of what we're doing. It's like... We've learned to be interested, to see clearly movement. It's part of being a beast. You know, animals, we're sensitive to certain things that support survival. Seeing mates, seeing food, seeing danger. And we're mostly blind to everything else. And now, certainly as human beings, maybe other beings too, who knows, but human beings, we have this capacity to take this external orientation and, in a sense, to turn it back on itself, to get interested in this, this subjective experience. So this is different than philosophy and psychology, where we continue with this dualistic, objective knowing. Now we're taking the knowing and turning it to the subjective experience of knowing. We're getting interested in the subjective experience of knowing. See, knowing can't be the movement that's being known. Because whatever, however we define the knowing, that's just something being known. So knowing by its very nature is empty. Knowing is what illuminates what's being known. So by getting interested getting close to what is being known and just holding the question something like, known by what? 
what, or getting interested in the space in which all this is being known, all this is coming and going. Not what's coming and going, but that it's coming and going here and now. It becomes, it sort of becomes alive. The mind sort of becomes interested and begins to intuit something that it has been missing, has written off as unimportant. But one of the things, as you reflect in this way, it brings perspective to everything that's moving. So there's a sense of less and less attachment, less and less grasping. Beautiful things are just beautiful things being known. Terrible things are just terrible things being known. Neutral things are just neutral things being known. It's as if the world that we're inhabiting and responding to, it's just what it is. It's neither good nor bad. And it isn't that we would reject it because that would, that would just be another attachment. I have to reject the world. So this, this is one of the telltale signs of the deepening of this insight. The heart isn't rejecting the world. Just because there's emptiness, there's nobody who has to reject it. So if this insight arises and you Feel yourself doing this to the world, it just hasn't matured, the insight. You just gotta keep at it. Because look at that activity of rejecting the world and see that it also is happening here and now. It's being known. So hopefully there's something in this talk that's useful, but I'll leave it here. We have 15 minutes. Maybe people have questions that can help open up a discussion, experiences in your own practice that are related to some of the things I've said tonight that you'd like to share with the group? What comes to mind? When you talk about the space in between things, my name's Valerie, by the way. Um, when I'm pra- practicing breathing, I started a couple weeks ago noticing when I'm not breathing as part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good instruction to notice that space between the end of the out breath and the beginning of the in breath, because if you're not noticing that space, the neurotic mind will want to fill it up with activity. So often we get distracted in those moments because it's disconcerting. We're watching some movement, and then there's no movement, even if it's just for an instant. Because we're not used to relaxing with emptiness, with what's unformed, undefined. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. What else comes to mind? Yeah, John. I noticed that if something spills or there's some audible sound, even the first five or ten minutes sitting there, that I tend to startled by that, but if that happens towards the end of the sit, I'm able just to take more interest in it, and I'm not, I'm not startled, I'm not focused on that, I'm just sort of following as it goes, and so that really, this tonight's topic really resonates with me, the still moving water, because if that should happen, and I'm in that um, uh, sort of empty state, wherever I am, I'm just able to 
when the mind is attached to the objects that are moving, that are coming and going, then it will get startled when something interrupts its fixation on what's moving. So, like we're fixated on, a, on an idea that we're thinking, through, what am I going to do tomorrow? And then somebody sneezes, and it surprises us, because we were lost in that world, attached to that movement of that thought. But when the mind is more in the knowing, and less expecting the movement to be this way or that way, then when something sudden happens, it doesn't surprise the mind. In some traditions, like in the Zen tradition, the teacher will make unexpected sounds. They've got neat little musical objects like clapping sticks or other things that they can whack. So they're in the middle of a silent period, people sitting and meditating. Something unexpected will happen. And it's like a teacher, like, well, what did the mind do? Was it just the next thing being known in this empty space? The next arising phenomena that is illuminated with consciousness? Oh, now it's this way. Now it's this way. So you can look at what John was saying. You can use that as a barometer, not just in your sip, but through life. Like when you hear things, your friend calls you and says, hey, guess what happened? It's like, is the mind startled? Because if it's startled, that means it had an expectation that that wasn't going to happen. My friend wasn't going to call me and tell me that. But when we're not startled, it means the mind wasn't fixed in any expectation. So how could it be surprised? We can only be surprised when we have the expectation that something or other shouldn't be happening. And then when it happens, we're surprised. I mentioned the other night, I don't think it was the Wednesday night group, about the asteroid that fell in Russia recently. Some of you probably caught the news. It was sort of big news for a few days. And it's like, uh, no, that's not a common thing. But if it does happen, we shouldn't be surprised. It's like uh, we were on retreat. I was leading a retreat, an eight-day retreat at Holy Spirit Retreat Center in late August uh, over Labor Day weekend. And... Uh, I was outside late at night looking up at the sky and I had the thought, you know, boy, I haven't seen a shooting star in a while. You know, it's like, we, we all have this imprint, like seeing shooting stars is a good thing. <laughs> it's called attachment. Well, sure enough, there's a shooting star, you know, and it was one of those really neat ones, you know, that kind of went for a long time and it sort of broke up. Have you ever seen one of those? And so you, you kind of, like, it's a little bit more dramatic. And it's just interesting to watch, because my mind being on retreat, leading a retreat, I was just more in the space of things, like just letting that be. Not doing anything about that. Like It could just be that very ephemeral experience. How long does that last? Five seconds, maybe. You know? And then just let it be over when it's over. And then it's gone. So we can use that sense of surprise or startled as a barometer for how much we're in the middle of still flowing water versus how much the mind is attached to the movements of our lives. Trying to find ground in what's moving. It's not a refuge. The refuge comes from being right in the moving, right in the middle of it, but taking refuge in the unconditioned, in the space. But it's no distance from the movement. 
Yeah, say your name. It's the knowing, right? So one of the things, like, there we are with a friend, and we're going to... But before we, we share it, we feel the movement of the intention. Like there's a motivation to say something about it, right? So we notice that movement, but we notice that intention, that motivation is being known. So it's like, it's like another shooting star. There's emptiness, like the night sky, and then all of a sudden that motivation, oh, to go tell Charlie about this. Oh, there's Charlie. I'm going to go tell him. You know, and that's like a shooting star. And then it just, and then there you are. And then the words coming out of your mouth are like another shooting star. So the more we learn to trust, intuit and trust the knowing, it's like our life becomes really interesting. Like, boy, it would be interesting to see what I say next. What I do next. Because we think, I've got to be there to do it. But that's just not the case. When we look honestly, carefully, there doesn't need, we don't need to construct a somebody who's doing this life. That's the fundamental mistake, and that leads directly to the experience of stress. The mind is projecting the sense of a somebody who's living this life. And then, then, unfortunately, then that somebody has preferences and struggles with the great movement of all things. Because they have preference. That projected somebody has preferences. So feels obliged to resist when things aren't going its way. And feels obliged to get happy and attached when things are going its way. So it struggles. So we practice uh, staying in the knowing. Being interested in the knowing. Like, oh, this is something being known. Like, uh, I really like Steve Armstrong, who taught here at the center, and he leads a yearly retreat with his wife, Kamala Masters, in June. But he was teaching here at the center once, and uh, he made this really good point. Like, when you're noticing the movement of life, different phenomena being known, and you want to note it, mentally note it from time to time, then really emphasize his being known. So like now I'm seeing, but seeing is being known. So that's the part that we emphasize. Not seeing, with the mind sort of like trying to feed off of the sights that are being seen, but being more interested in that the sights are being known here in the space of now, in the empty space of now. That really brings balance, helps us as a human being uh, negotiate what it means to be a human being, you know, having to be a social beast and feed ourselves, and protect ourselves, and love and care. I mean, all these parts of being human, it's so hard when it all feels personal. And it's no problem at all when it's not personal. Like uh, one, I think actually there's a new book out, but I think it was a Sri Lankan monk once said, no self, no problem. <laughs> so we have a little bit more time, yeah. Hi, my name is Greg, and I appreciate your talking about this detachment from things that we 
phenomenon, and I can certainly relate to when you said uh, when I was four years old, you know, oh, and it's not there anymore, and of course now, you know, I can be aware of things like our government shutting down, and technology put me out of work, and old age has given me a lot of aches and pains I didn't have before, and all of these things, I can say these things are being known, and try not to be attached to them, it's awfully hard not to be attached if you're out of work, like as I have been for about three years, and uh, got to try to find a job at my age, you know, and, and that kind of thing seems very difficult not to be bitter about it, so I'm always finding that I'm going through this process of trying to regurgitate these negative energies, and, and I say, I just calmly say, depression is being known. <laughs> and, but, you know, how satisfying is that? Because I don't fight it anymore. I say, okay, I'm just going to be depressed. And, and you have to accept that. And unless you accept that, it's never going to go away. But but I can kind of cultivate some detachment from that. But it's still a pretty good picture. But that's also being known. See, this is the thing is, we have we have to decide what our allegiance is to. Is our allegiance to this world, the trajectory of this body, let's say, this trajectory of this life? Because we know what that is. You know, it, the trajectory is basically the same. Even from the most attractive, powerful, long-lived person and another person who has a very short and miserable life, there's birth and then there's death. That's the basic trajectory of human life. Nobody wins at that. So, the question is, how to realize real peace, wisdom, and love in this experience? Now, when you use this is being known, that strategy, remember, it's not a strategy to get rid of painful experience. That's the key, because it won't work if that's the, the motivation. The motivation is that when you say this is being known, it's like you're aligning yourself with what is true. This is being known. So you got to really intuit the truth of what you're saying. Otherwise, it will fall flat as a meditation and awakening strategy. You won't actually wake up if you're trying to manage pain and difficulty with that strategy is being known. It will fall flat. But when you use it uh, in a way that is sort of uh, coming out of your understanding. Oh, this terrible thing is being known. I'll give you an example. It's kind of poignant right now for me. My dad died on Tuesday morning, and uh, uh, I, when I, I saw him, you know, an hour or so after he died, and uh, sitting there with him and sobbing. But because of the continuity of my practice, I... There was just understanding, this is being known. There was a real space. There was a person who was crying and feeling the emotion, and there was space around it. The space, not as somebody, but a space knowing this is being known. And so, it is, it's very liberating to realize this. But we have to really come from the place of understanding, not as a person who wants to manage pain. 
in life. Because what we're doing is, the whole thing is about letting life be life. And when it's pleasant, it's really pleasant. And when it's unpleasant, it is truly unpleasant. But the pleasantness, all of it, and the unpleasantness, all of it, is something being known. Meaning, it's arising and falling in this open, empty space with no center. And really, uh, inhabiting that is liberating. Very hard to achieve that kind of objectivity. It is. That's why we practice. <laughs> yeah. Francie. So, and, and I'm just saying what Francie said in different words. We have, each of us, we have to find our way into here and now because we don't need to go looking for emptiness. It's here and now. And so our mind is already uh, in the habit of noticing movement. So we just purify how we're opening to that movement, how we're knowing like the breath. Because it's right here. You can't know the breath if we know the breath in a profound way, emptiness will be revealed. So you don't have to go looking for it specifically. That will be neurotic. I guarantee it. <laughs> there are a lot of people who suffer because of this. It has to be quick, Wendy, where it's 9 o'clock. You sure? So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Noticing what's formed and intuiting the unformed. And we can end with gratitude for these teachings and for a real teacher, which is our experience here and now. Everything that needs to be seen is here and now. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.